Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective consciousness. Being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. My name is Maurizio. My name is Zaya. And we... <laughs> we got clunky. We, we co-founded Science and Duality 15 years ago and we directed the movie The Wisdom of Trauma that you hopefully many of you, if not all of you, have seen. And, and we live, currently we are based, we live on the unceded land of Southern Pomo and coastal Newark land in so-called California. Yes. So welcome and um, we're delighted for to have for our guest today. Uh, we feel that the topic of historical trauma is very pertinent for for all of us today. Very very important. And very pertinent. So um, let's introduce our guest. Yes. Ia Afro. Ia is a culturalist and a historical trauma specialist. She is certified in multiple uh, trauma modalities. So she's a trauma specialist. And she's also a descendant of a long line of traditional healers from West Africa. She's also a chief in a village of Oida. I don't know if I pronounced that correct. Correct me, Ia. Wida. Wida. Thank you. You're welcome. And she's also a high priestess in the Yoruba tradition. And uh, Ia has visited more than 30 countries around the world. Like in West Africa, she lived among medicine men and women to learn the ways of the shaman and to understand the truth about the transatlantic slave trade. In China, she lived in the Shaolin Temple. In India, with her son. in India, she lived in an ashram while learning the Hindu costume and ideology, and then serving the Navajo Nation in the, in the, in the Gila River Indian community, Ia found a home among the egalitarian indigenous people of North America. So her knowledge is cross-cultural in ways that are is completely mind-blowing and not heart-opening. So it's such a joy to have you with us. Welcome, Ia. And just for, for the participants to know, we will start with a couple of questions we will ask Ia. I will start with the conversation and then we'll invite you in to bring your questions, comments. And the way we're going to do that, uh, we'll ask you to uh, raise your hand. There is an icon um, below the participant list that you can click and raise your hand. And also send your question to a participant called question. Yes. You will see in the list of Send the question. Let's make it question. So ideally you would do both. Uh, send your question and raise your hand. And then we will bring you on screen and you can have a conversation with Ia. So welcome Ia and thank you so much for being with us today. I could almost cry like I'm seeing people from all over the world and it's bringing me so much joy. Um, it, it's just breathtaking 
every time I see a new, you know, a new place. So thank you so much for, for having me. And, and I'm so excited to be here. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you, yeah. Well, maybe we can begin by if you could share, how did you start on this journey of learning about historical trauma? What set you off to to travel around the world to learn about cultures and to start learning about historical trauma? What was your personal journey? That yeah, you, uh, you know, I think um, as long as I can remember uh, going back in my childhood, I struggled with tremendous depression. And um, I just went through a lot of things emotionally. Um, I grew up in a very Jewish community. And so I would see all my Jewish friends and visit their families. And I would see their families interact in a way that was very different than my family. Um, as we, you know, as we started getting older, you know, I would think like, well, why is it so different for me and the, the black people in our community versus, you know, my Jewish friends and in their community? Why is it so different? We have similar socioeconomic backgrounds. Our parents do similar jobs. Um, we have the same education, but the trajectory is so different for us. Why is that? Um, and then as time started going and we got to ages where my friends would be in Hebrew school, I mean, I would literally be outside of the, the temple with my face on the glass, looking inside, trying to know, like, what are they doing in there? And sometimes the rabbis would invite me to come inside and allow me, you know, to participate or, you know, to at least listen. And I started to wonder, well, you know, what language did my people speak? And what are our stories? And, um, you know, why is there such a, an emphasis on remembering the Holocaust? And um, everybody knows that, you know, even my friends can talk to me about the Holocaust and they know facts about it and they kind of control the narrative about it. And what about the slave trade? And where did my people come from? And where's our Hebrew school? How, you know, why don't I have something like this? And so it really got me thinking. And I remember it being so intense that I thought, did something happen to our DNA? Like, is there something wrong with our DNA that we have so much suffering and, and um, so much struggle to overcome what has happened in the past. And, uh, you, you know, and that, that's really, for me, where it started. So that piqued my interest at a very young age. Um, I was uh, always kind of a traveler. So once uh, I traveled a lot as a young person, uh, you know, with my family. But once I got to age 17 and 18, where I could travel on my own, I just started traveling to just understand other cultures and understand how other people deal with trauma. Um, and that, that's really, that's really what got me going. Yeah. That, that's what happened. And we can maybe talk about that later. That probably I would assume that's where you found the seeds for healing on your journey. I mean, that exploration yeah. uh, led you to your 
your own healing journey. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, maybe you can share and teach us like what you have learned about historical trauma and how does it manifest in different communities and why some communities are more impacted than others or why there is more resources or resilience available and i don't know if that's a question uh, if that's the case maybe you will correct me there maybe resilient is everywhere but i'm putting too many questions so maybe you can just speak about what you have learned how trauma has manifested in different communities and i you speak so eloquently about faces of trauma so um sure love to hear sounds good um you know the thing about trauma is certainly some communities are more resilient than others, right? We're all resilient because we're all here, right? So we're not, I'm not going to challenge anybody's resilience, right? We're still here. We have still survived. But there are communities that um, have a more full expression of resilience than others. And I think what starts to happen is when we look at trauma, are we looking at Um, trauma that happens in communities where people still have the tools that they need to be resilient. What I realized, one of the big differences between um, my friends that were Jewish and and my Black friends and, and family growing up, I looked at my Jewish friends and I was envious of the fact that they still had language. You know, when I would go to my friends' houses, we would speak Yiddish. You know, I still, you know, know little Yiddish words now, but in the home, Yiddish was spoken. So there was still some language that was there. When we got up to rites of passage age, I went to bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs, and um, I would hear about bris. Um, ceremonies for circumcision for younger siblings and and cousins and things like that. So all of these, a lot of these um, cultural traditions and religious traditions and ceremony were still intact. Um, I was blown away when I found out that it is your birthright to touch Israeli soil at some point in your life when you are Jewish. And there are all of these organizations that will help you. If you don't have the money to travel on your own, there are organizations that will help you so that you have the opportunity to make that pilgrimage home. Um, So all of these things, you know, that people could still be connected to their ancestral land, that you could still be connected to religion. Um, If I went to synagogue with, you know, my friends and I could participate and hear things going on and and be a part of religious ceremonies and there would be seders and all kinds of special events that I was I was able to be a part of, um, you know, big Yom Kippur things and, you know, all of this Rosh Hashanah and, you know, we would have all these ceremonies and traditions, having that connection to who you are ancestrally helps to mitigate some of the damage of trauma, right? If we think about it, if um, within the Christian tradition, if 
somebody passes away in your family and you are heavily reliant upon your church community, you're waiting for Sunday to come so that you can go to church, so that you can hear the words, so that you can sing the songs, so that you can have fellowship with others in your community, or you have Bible study on Wednesday, you need to get to Bible study because that's going to help you process some of the things that you're going through. So in communities and cultures where these things are still intact, there's the ability to have a more full expression of resilience. I want to be careful in how I say that because every ethnic group has had adversity, right? At some point in history, we all have had adversity at some point in history. So I don't want to take that away from anybody. And I don't say, you know, the Holocaust is a horror, one of the worst crimes ever committed against humanity. I mean, horrible and people suffered and there is still suffering and there is still the impact on the people. We can never, you know, invalidate that for anybody. But to have those pieces still intact it helps you to have the resilience. So when I look at um, like African-American people and or really Africans throughout the diaspora, and I think about um, last names, I, I, I'm a name changer. So for a long time growing up, I would change my name. Okay, I'm going to be called this now. Okay, I'm going to be called that now. Okay, I want to be called this I never was connected and anchored really to a name. And then as more, the more I developed in this work, I go, well, right, hello, what percentage of Africans in the diaspora are connected to slave master last names? I cannot find the statistic yet, but it has to be, what, 90%, 95% maybe? are Jones and Williams and Smith and Brown and Murray and Johnson, all of those names, right? Those are not our names. Those names belong to the people that owned our ancestors. So if every time you speak your name, you are imprinting again the fact that you, your ancestors were owned by somebody else, what does that do to you spiritually, vibrationally, right? If we want to really take it to the foundation, to the core, but what does that do for you also psychologically? So how do you have that full expression of resilience when you don't have even connection to your name? In many um, First Nation cultures, when you introduce yourself, you start by saying who your people are and where they come from. And in doing that, you allow the person that you're introducing yourself to, to have an understanding of who you are, you know, who your people are, where you come from. That's really how they know you, by your ancestors, by the land that you originated from. If we as African people and even some First Nation people who have lost their way, right? If we don't even know where we come from, right? We, we don't know where our ancestral land is. We don't have connection to the names that came before us. 
how do we have that North Star to help us find our way, right? And to find our way in the world or find our way back to ourselves. One of the most powerful things that happened to me was being able to, to trace my people back to Benin Republic, uh, West Africa, to, which was once Dahomey, um, and to marry my husband, who is, West, is Beninese, and, uh, and expose me to the opportunity to have ritual and ceremony. And the first thing they did was say, you have to have a name. You, you don't have a name. And so my first ritual and ceremony was to determine who am I? So the first thing they said was, okay, we're going to go and talk to the ancestors. We're going to talk to the deities and find out who this woman is. And the first name that was given to me was Wekeno. And that means mother or owner of the universe. And then the second name that was given, which is more in our, our tradition is more of a title, which is Ia, which is Holy Mother. So in finding Holy Mother, Mother of the Universe, my life started to make sense because I came into this world being a mother and a nurturer and taking care of everyone around me, right? So I can go back to age two and three and four and see that nurturer, that mother. So when I was bestowed those names and that title, I said, ah, I have value. I know who I am. This has always been with me, even before I realized it was a part of me. So when I make my decisions in life, you remember what your, your path is, your destiny is, that you're a mother, you're a holy mother, you're the mother of the universe. You must have patience. Because you must start to see all of these people as your children. So even the people that are hurting you and that are aggressing you, that have molested you, these are your children and you must interact with them as you would a child. And that in and of itself is healing, right? If you can see the person that aggresses you and molests you as a person, they're not quite there yet. They, you know, they have to have, you know, you have to give grace. You have to give mercy. This is part of your role. And this is even teaching you to be in your role. Because if you are the mother, you have grace and you have mercy, even in the face of adversity. So this is the importance of having those tools um, that we use for resilience. Um, I, I have to touch and, um, you know, I, I take the direction that spirit leads me. And so I'm going to assume uh, that spirit is leading me here because we have people that have gone through abuse and are, are coping with abuse that are on the call right now. So I have to say that even in the face of abuse and even in the face of severe hurt, we have to remember that we live in the physical world for evolution. 
and we live in the physical world so that we can keep growing, growing, evolving, raising our consciousness. When we start to heal pain and we start to heal trauma, we have to remember those pieces and remember that we only grow when we face adversity. We don't grow when we're resting. If life is easy and we're kicked back, it's a rest period. We're not really growing. When we are facing adversity is when we are having our growth. And it's painful. It's painful. And I have to acknowledge that pain and that hurt. But it's part of what our journey is in this lifetime. And it changes who we are as people. If I have not gone through the adversity that I've gone through, I cannot be the person that I am today. And the thing I am most proud of in myself is my ability to love human beings. That's what I'm most proud of. When you face me, when you come before me, I instinctively search for the best part of you. I look for it. It might be a seed. And that's okay because when I find that seed, I know then how to empower you and hold you so that you can have your growth. That's what I'm most proud of. If I had not gone through some of the horrors that I've gone through, I don't have the ability to, to be that human being. And that's what I'm most proud of. So that's part of the adversity. And that's part of being able to have our full expression of resilience. This physical world is not meant to, for us to be easy. The physical world is meant for us to do work. Sorry, I probably went way no, out no, of here. No, sorry. There. So what I'm hearing is two aspects of like the beginning of the healing process that you're mentioning. One is turning towards our pain because sometimes the pain is so big that we just want to run away or numb it just because we can't handle it. But we cannot avoid turning towards the pain. And the other aspect I'm hearing is is looking for the for the lineage for the root for the cycles that might be still moving through us and expressing the cycles that our ancestors started and they're still living in our lives so start looking and studying and learning about lineage and yes yeah see the patterns that they are repeating that's right might be consciously or unconsciously, unconsciously repeating. That's right. That's right. Because we all have faced adversity. We all have traditional ways that we have managed adversity. And when we can tap back into some of that, it will help us to manage our current day adversity. Some of the, the reason that many communities struggle to have a full expression of resilience is because they have been stripped of their tools to manage adversity. I talk often about this story, and, and if you've heard me talk before, you might have heard me say it, but um, a few years, oh, we have to do everything COVID, pre-COVID, post-COVID, right? So pre-COVID, uh, I, I was 
at a conference in Flagstaff, Arizona. And at lunch, they brought in these um, dancers from the White Mountain Apache tribe. So they were singing and dancing and it was powerful. And um, I, I remember thinking like, oh, there's more to this than entertainment. This is certainly not entertainment. This is, you know, a, a traditional something that they used to do. So I asked the dancers and I said, you know, what was this? You know, what is this dance and what is this, this singing? You know, it's really impacting me. And he said to me that when the Apache used to go to war, you know, they would go out to war. And we see things in war and experience things in war, right, that potentially can be traumatizing for us. When they returned from war, they would perform that dance and that song. In 2022, we'll say that was their debriefing, right? We, we have ways that we debrief our soldiers when they come back from war. That was the Apache way of debriefing. So that's how they got their neurological regulation. Because if we go to war, right, we have to be in fight or flight. We have to be in stress response because we have to be in surviving, right? In survival mode. We move into, we must survive. That's how we fight war. When we come home, we are still in that level of stress response. Well, if we take that level of stress response back to our family, back to the community, we're going to be dis destructive in the community. So we have to have a process where we neurologically regulate first, then clean up, you know, it's also on a spiritual level, cleaning up our, our you know, our spirit and making sure that our essence is clean and, and ready to return back to our people. And then we return and we return regulated and cleansed so we don't bring all of that back to our community. That was a tool for neurological regulation. That was a tool for mitigating the damage of trauma. But when we have colonization and we have historical trauma, we're stripped of those tools. Right. If we're stripped of our, our traditional tools to manage these things, we have to find artificial ways to have neurological regulation or destructive ways to have neurological regulation, right? So then we have addiction, right? We have, we, we have all levels of addiction, right? We have sex, we have alcohol, drugs, uh, Amazon, right. the internet, all of those addictions so that we can have neurological regulation. Mm. That's what happens when we are stripped of our culture. Right. And uh, for the brain, there is no difference, you know, how we regulate, right? That's right. Whether, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. I, um, you also talk about epigenetics, and I know something that set you on your quest was like also, how does that live in our DNA? Maybe you can share something about what you've learned from epigenetics, how that trauma uh, historical trauma is passed on from one generation to the next. And we don't even know yet how many generations, or maybe we do. Right, right, right. right. Um, I first, I'm going to preface it by saying that 
We know that trauma passes from one generation to the next through, through the science of epigenetics. We've learned that. We also know that positive experiences and healing also go from one generation to the next, which is why I love the science of epigenetics, because this, for me, gave the opportunity to affect the future generations. If I know, if I now know that how I interact with my granddaughter and how I um, groom my children to be parents can impact potentially 14 generations after me, I now have new motivation, right, to change some of my behaviors and work with my neurological regulation and work with some of those things. So benevolence and positive childhood experiences also go one generation to the next. Okay. Um, but if we talk about historical trauma and how this impacts us, and this for me is absolutely mind blowing. Um, this information has been out, you know, almost 30 years. So this is not new. Dr. Rachel Yehuda has been talking about this for, you know, almost 30 years. Uh, Dr. Yellow Horse Braveheart Jordan, Dr. Marie Yellow Horse Braveheart Jordan, she's been talking about this since the 90s as well. So this is not new. Um, okay, let's, let's do storytelling. If I have an ancestor from nine generations ago that's on the continent of Africa, during the slave trade, right? So that's about nine generations back for me where my ancestor would be um, during the slave trade. Now, there's my ancestor doing day-to-day -day work and has heard that somebody potentially is gonna steal me and take me to the new world because that information was traveling back, right? I don't know if that's going to be a, a foreigner, if that's going to be a settler or European or an African from another tribe. I don't know. But what I know is there's the potential for me to be stolen. So as I move and do my day to day work, I must become hypervigilant, right? I better be hypervigilant because this could be happening at any point in time. So the DNA does not change. The genetic information does not change. The expression of that genetic information is what changes. So suddenly I'm hypervigilant. I'm looking around. Okay. Is there something? Is there anyone? Okay. My hearing is going to change potentially, right? If I hear a stick break in the forest, is that an animal? Is that a human? I'm going to learn to differentiate animal breaking the stick from human breaking the stick because my I'm in survival mode, right? So I'm now moved into the survival part of my brain and I am going to, my body is innately going to adapt to the hostile environment in which I live. If I'm walking along, my smell might change. <laughs> I can smell, oh, there was an animal that was just here. There was a human that was just here. There was somebody from my tribe just here. There was a foreign person just here. That's how keen my sense of smell can get because I'm in this hostile environment and I need that for survival. 
all of those switches will we'll really make it simple, but all of those switches that just got turned on in order to survive um, somebody stealing me have the potential to stay switched on for up to 14 generations, according to the Cherry Blossom study. You can look that up. Cherry Blossom study will talk about it and they'll say 14 generations. So for potentially 14 generations, I can be hypervigilant, more hypervigilant. I can have, you know, hearing that can, can differentiate things. Hmm. We don't always like to talk about the sixth sense, right? The feeling and the spiritual thing, but that is going to increase too, right? I can come somewhere and I can sense, my body can sense that somebody else is going to be that somebody else is in that area, you see? So all of that can go generation after generation after generation. So now if we think about my son and he walks into a classroom and he's had trauma from his, his ancestor all those generations ago, and then they've had the trauma of what happened once we got to the new world, right? And then the trauma that has accumulated over time all the way up to all the young, you know, the, all the, the African-American people being shot. When he walks into the classroom and he presents in school, maybe he's hypervigilant. Maybe he has a hard time focusing. This is something that could have impacted him from all of those generations ago and then become cumulative over time as each next generation comes with their new trauma and so forth and so on. That's, that's epigenetics. So the reason we're still talking about the slave trade today is because we are still impacted by the slave trade today. So what I'm absolutely saying is, if you're part of the BIPOC community, and this is why we often focus a lot on the BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, People of Color community when we're talking about historical trauma, it's not that we don't care about the other communities or it's not that they don't matter. Of course, they absolutely matter. Everybody matters, right? Um, but if we're talking about the Black, Indigenous, People of Color community and we have this historical trauma that came from all these generations ago layered with new trauma from each generation. And then in the world today where we're still experiencing some oppression and violence and discrimination, we're going to have a lot of stress hormones in our system all the time. Right? Because each layer that we talk about is going to add just a little bit more. So if we're walking around, um, if we're walking around with a lot of stress hormone in our system, our window of tolerance is much smaller. So if we looked at a scale of one to 10, right? 10 being you're about to explode. And as a black woman, I wake up at a four, right? If I, if I wake up at a four, just from the historical trauma, just from the stuff that I deal with day to day, maybe, you know, stuff I have to deal with at work, the code switching I have to do as a black woman, on and on and on. And I wake up at, at a four. And then I start to have the regular stressors that happen in day-to-day -day life. 
I might be explode. I might explode sooner because my window of tolerance is smaller due to the historical trauma and the layering of the trauma. I saw a question pop up that I want to clear, clear up right now. Um, yeah. And I know you'll ask, have people ask questions later, but I want to clear this now. Um, the um, historical trauma is not necessarily um, a factor in ADD, ADHD, but the trauma specialists of today, the trauma big names like Dr. Bruce Perry or Nadine Burke Harris, will say that often ADD, ADHD is misdiagnosed. It will be called, you'll be diagnosed with ADD, ADHD, sometimes the oppositional defiance disorder, autism, a lot of these you know, diagnoses when in fact the issue is trauma. So I'm not saying that trauma contributes to those diagnoses. I'm saying according to our trauma grades, those diagnoses are, are not always accurate. I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, so I don't speak from that perspective. I speak from the work of our, you're welcome. I speak, you know, from the work of, of our trauma experts. Right. And prescribing medicine, medication would never address the root cause of the issue that... No. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so dangerous. And I'm glad you say it because when I worked as, um, uh, on the, as a community-based clinician in um, First Nations, you see a tremendous amount of diagnoses. 90-something percent of my caseload would be ADHD or ADD diagnoses. And often the caregivers would keep saying the medication doesn't work. They keep prescribing more and more medication. I would go to the doctor, to the psychiatrist with my client as an advocate and say, these medications are not working. And there would be more medication or time release medication than coupled with uh, uh, sleep aids for kids, you know, that are eight, nine and 10 years old taking sleeping pills to go to bed because they're so hyped up on this ADD, ADHD medication that doesn't work because we're talking about communities that almost 100% of the communities have experienced historical trauma and are continuing to experience trauma today. A lot of those symptoms are, have to do with trauma. Right. And not to mention that uh, historically, these children of indigenous communities, they have a completely different way of learning. The ancestors didn't learn by sitting on a chair in a classroom right. for six hours. That's completely unnatural. It's completely not connected yes. to their DNA. Yes. That's against their instincts, their nature. So we're forcing, again, in, imposing um, right. Western mindset to right. other cultures, and that's re-traumatizing again. That's um, right. Right. And I'm just wondering if you can reflect, because I, I could see that something similar can be happening, and, and I'm asking for maybe finding a balance by bringing Western therapy to indigenous communities, to BIPOC communities, which, again, I'm sure it's helpful in some way but also it goes against the, the lineages or the cultures of healing. If you can say something about that. You're going to make me stand on my chair. Like this gets <laughs> me so, you know, invigorated. You know, absolutely. Um, 
I, I'm, I'm going to step very carefully. Yeah. Um, in, in, in communities where people have been traumatized, the best way for us to heal moving forward is to become self-healing communities. We must be healing ourselves. Um, and when we bring Western culture and Western ideology into our healing spaces, it is often more damaging. Let me give you an example. Um, we went through COVID and, and I'm allowed to give this example. I'm not betraying my son. I talk about this often. So I'll just put that there. Um, during COVID, one of my sons really struggled because my husband has not been home and my other sons were, were uh, our adults and they were you know, isolating due to COVID, so forth and so on. My younger son was, was really struggling. When he went back to school, he continued to struggle emotionally. And um, the, the social worker at school wanted to have these conversations and help him. And she, she was very kind and loving and really wanted to help him. His, he, he's, you know, a Yorba voodoo person. So we don't talk about um, a lot of negative things that happen because our belief system says that you're then empowering and calling those negative things. So sometimes that sounds weird for people, but think about the secret, right? Everybody has embraced the idea of the, of the secret and um, the laws of attraction and all that kind of stuff, right? So similar stuff, right? So it, it can be on the wavelength of, of what you can understand. So if we are constantly talking about something negative and, and, and reliving something negative that has happened, that's against his cultural beliefs. So he's never going to have those conversations with you, although he needs some help. If we. I keep discussing. A, a rape that has happened to me. Right. And I, I've discussed it and I've talked about it and I've dealt with it. And then I come back to therapy again and to talk about it again. And then I come back and again and I talk about it again and then I get more detailed and then I tell you all the different things. And then I do all this stuff. Every time I go to therapy, I'm dysregulating my brain again. I'm, I'm becoming dysregulated again. When I become dysregulated again, I'm practicing being in my brainstem which is the most primitive part of the brain and the part of the brain that we use for survival. So if I keep going over this again and again and again, and I continually practice the neural pathway of being dysregulated, I'm continuing to teach myself to be dysregulated and I'm continuing to empower the neural pathway for dysregulation. So there, that's twofold, right? So that's a twofold thing. It goes against 
my cultural beliefs and my cultural ways of being. And it's potentially also disturbing my neurobiology. So we have a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists that work out in indigenous communities, in First Nation communities that will say that, you know, our Western ways of managing trauma and mental health are not necessarily healthy for First Nation people and are potentially re-traumatizing First Nation people. Um, so I say that carefully. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't claim to be. Um, but if we look at things from our indigenous perspective and then look at things from a neurological perspective, that's what we find. So what I ended up doing with my son, because I always want to give you um, a solution, right? I don't always want to say what's bad, what's terrible. Here's the solution. What I did with my son was I took him to a trauma um, person that practices like um, motivational interviewing. And so when my son talks about behaviors, perhaps that he wants to change and he and this person who is a psychologist then says, but how did you survive that? How did you get to this point? What did you do to get here? Then my son says, well, you know, well, you know, I do martial arts and so I do my Kung Fu and um, well, I also like to go run. So I, I go on the trail, you know, near my house and I run. Um, and then I do this and I do this. When he's leaving that session, he feels like, oh, I'm empowered. I have tools. Oh, I'm not that bad. You know, I used to be, you know, at a 10, but today I feel more at a five or, you know, and I've made progress because I have these tools that I utilize that helped me to do that. Mm -hmm. And so he walks away from that session neurologically regulated and the more we can be neurologically regulated the more we have the ability to change the neural pathways um, that cause us to have behaviors that that perhaps we don't want to have right right yeah, I love that, that she amplified the tools he was already using. They're not even tools. I hate the word tools because yeah. then you have to fix things with the yeah, tools. Yeah. Right? Exactly. 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 Uh, and I, I'm just maybe one last question and then we bring the audience. Yeah. I just in. want to, sorry, yes. to remind people that please raise your hand and, and write the question to the participant named question as Lucia did. Thank you, Lucia. So, so, so we know all the panorama, we can group the question and yeah, so please, Zaya, yes, back to you. Yes. Um, I was wondering, okay, I just gonna, we were filming recently in Palestine and in the West Bank and we came after releasing the Wisdom of Trauma movie, which had a huge, um, it was very well received. Uh, around the world and suddenly I found myself that everything I knew about trauma kind of collapsed and I just felt like wow even the concept of trauma is such a western again invention it's something 
that not to fully deconstruct it, but I found it. Yeah, it just fell apart. Like it did. It was not applicable to even use the word trauma there. So I'm just wondering for you, like maybe if you have experienced that in your journey of finding your roots and finding your tradition. Like, how is there such an understanding of trauma, or how is that addressed and 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 taught or healed? Like, what is the approach that your tradition takes towards healing? Yeah. Um, it's such a. Um, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. It's um, such a beautiful way from in, in my perspective for looking at the things that are happening in our in our physical world and in our day-to-day life so from our perspective we all have a unique um energetic configuration right and my energetic configuration makes me who i am and and yours makes you who you are and uh Gigi, i see you hi Gigi. uh makes you right who you are and so when we experience things in life, it might change our energetic configuration. And so we are constantly doing things to restore the energetic configuration. If we look at it from a neurological perspective, we can kind of see it in the same way, right? We have a level of neurological regulation and then we go through certain things in life that may cause us to be dysregulated and so we do things in order to re-regulate ourselves so we do ritual we do um you know cleansing ceremonies we're constantly using the nature in order to restore our neurological regulation or our spiritual vibration, right? Every leaf, every flower has a different essence, has a different vibration. So we use certain leaves in order to heal certain conditions. We use drumming and drumming is another form of healing. Again, we're talking vibrations and we're talking uh, neurological regulation, because if we think about 2022, we know that drumming and anything with rhythm is going to help us neurologically. Well, our ancestors already knew those things. So drumming is another way that we utilize healing. We use water a lot for cleansing and for healing and for neutralizing. The beads I wear, they're beads that we use that are for export and that are, you know, just for fun. And then there are beads that have gone through certain ritual and certain ceremony that caught that that have then a certain vibration they're made of certain things that come from the earth and cause them to have a certain vibration so depending on different things in my life or what i'm going through or how i feel i wear different beads i wear different colors i do different things to work with my neurological regulation and work with my my spiritual being if we take it outside of um, spirituality and we look at it in a more practical sense, 
here's another way that we have been able to manage trauma or that we learn to manage trauma. When I moved and lived in India for a period of time, I lived in a very uh, minimal lifestyle, right? I lived um, in an ashram, in a Hindu ashram. We slept on the floor. Um, we had clean water sometimes. Sometimes we didn't. I had to hand wash all of the clothes, you know, blah, 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 blah. What concerned me most in this environment was the thought of hand washing clothes because I had my young son and one of his school uniforms was white and there was a lot of red clay. And I thought, my goodness, this is the worst thing that ever happened to me is trying to hand wash this white uniform being worn by a seven-year-old. What I learned to do was, and this is how we clean the clothes, as you go you know, um, to a river area, there's a big, big rock and you take the clothes and you bang the rocks, the clothes on the rocks. I see somebody nodding. Yes, you know, lady. <laughs> okay. And so you do that. And then there's, the, there's some scrubbing that you do. You have like a scrubber. And then you're trying to scrub away the, the debris that's on the clothing. I learned, first of all, I learned to love that period of time because it became a moving meditation for me. If we remove it from spiritual, right, because everybody doesn't embrace the spiritual part, take it away from the spiritual part. The rhythm of hitting the clothing against that rock and the sound and the rhythm of the scrubber scrubbing the fabric is neurologically regulating. So when we live in a world that focuses on capitalism, growth, and expansion, we have removed a lot of the ways that we had traditionally to constantly be regulating ourselves throughout the day, right? I don't have the opportunity in the United States. I, I, I'm not banging the clothes on the rock. I'm putting the clothes into the machine and I'm going on about my day and I'm multitasking with 59,000 other things. And I'm staying constantly neuro neurologically dysregulated. The neurological dysregulation is what we can call trauma, right? That's the, that's the issue. It's what happens to us as a result of having neurological dysregulation. If I'm neurologically dysregulated, I'm going to be aggressive. I'm going to be hostile. I'm going to be in the most primitive part of my brain. I'm therefore going to have primitive behaviors. Um, I'm going to struggle to have... Um, to be self-reflective, I'm going to struggle to inhibit, um, you know, maladaptive behaviors. All of that has to do with neurological dysregulation. So we can call trauma this neurological dysregulation. When we lived differently and we valued relationships and we still had a relationship with the earth and we still had relationship with one another, we have ways of neurologically regulating because the most impactful way for us to feel safe and regulated and for our brain to feel regulated is through positive human interaction. That's at the top of the list. We must have relationship to heal this trauma. And the way we're healing this trauma is by activating the pleasure center of our brain. We have good relationships. We then therefore activate the pleasure centers of the brain. When the pleasure center of the brain gets activated, 
it releases the feel-good hormones, right? We get dopamine and, and serotonin and, epine- and uh, uh, endorphins and, you know, all of the things in our system, oxytocin, that make us feel good and safe and satiated and regulated. So the whole way that we are, are living in society supports neurological dysregulation, i.e. trauma. Because the very things we need in order to not experience that and in order to mitigate, um, you know, the adversity and, and lessen the blow of adversity is removed because we don't value those things anymore. We live in communities where we barely know our neighbors. We don't really interact with our neighbors. We don't have time to interact with friends. Um, We don't have time to be out in nature. We definitely don't bang clothes on the rock to clean them and scrub them with our hands. Right, right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is so informative and I, I just feel everything you're talking in my body. Yeah. I, it's it's so you're speaking not to my intellect, but you really it's going deeper. It's yeah. it's so intuitive also what you're sharing. It's knowledge that perhaps we all have, but we have forgotten it. You know, it's right. Like, That's the piece. We forgot. That's yeah. the piece. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's the to me the refreshing part of talking to you since we first met you. That is so not you don't use big words, yeah. you don't use the big word that make the things complicated. <laughs> it's like I feel your heart and your words are connected, and I feel that what you say makes sense. The simplicity, you know, of doing a simple action to to reconnect ourselves, the the community. I mean, it's beautiful. It's a pleasure. I just and thank you for listening to the sounds of sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of SAN content, available exclusively to SAN members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify, and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.